Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Wednesday, April 21. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Katrina Blouse. And Katrina, on today's briefing, an army officer who served in Afghanistan. Yeah, Tom, we'll get his reaction to this week's announcement of a royal commission into veteran suicide. Veterans don't get to pick, you know, where we go and conduct ourselves and, and demonstrate Um, what our country sends us to do. We just do, and we do to the very best of our ability. Yeah, very powerful interview with the former Special Forces Officer Heston Russell in just a moment. First, to the big news of the day. And America is poised for the verdict in the Derek Chauvin murder trial. Yeah, the jury in Minneapolis have been deliberating for 10 hours, but just this morning our time, uh, American media outlets are reporting that they've reached a verdict and they're expected to deliver at mid-morning Australian Eastern time, which will be several hours after recording this podcast. Yeah, lots of nervous people awaiting the outcome of this. Overnight, US President Joe Biden took a really extraordinary step of weighing in on the trial. I'm praying the verdict is the right verdict, which is, I think it's overwhelming in my view. Yeah, that is a very big call. The right verdict, overwhelming, while the jury is deciding whether former police officer Derek Chauvin is guilty or not guilty of second degree murder in the death of George Floyd last year. Very surprising. Biden spoke to members of Floyd's family and said he was really moved by that experience. It was only on Monday, Tom, that the Minnesota state judge who is presiding over the case warned politicians from commenting on the outcome. Um, Politicians don't usually do that kind of thing, at least in democracies. And now you have the president weighing in. Yeah, Biden said he only did it after the jury was sequestered, which means isolated for their deliberations. But yeah, it, it seems like a potentially problematic move. You've got the whole country on edge preparing potentially for massive protests if there's a not guilty verdict. And you'd imagine the president's words would add fuel to the fire of those protests if there is a not guilty verdict. Biden's press secretary sought to clarify those comments, uh, said he wasn't commenting one way or the other, and I guess technically wasn't. Uh, But Mm. it certainly, if you analyse the language, it doesn't really read like that, does it? Yeah, I don't think he was saying um, that Derek Chauvin was overwhelmingly innocent. No. And that, uh, that, that sentence, if he is found guilty, uh, 40 years in prison. And a big climate announcement is expected today from the Prime Minister. He's tipped to pledge half a billion dollars on technology to reduce carbon emissions. That's right, around 250 million of that will go towards developing four more hydrogen production hubs and the rest will be used for setting up carbon capture and storage projects. The spending is expected to support more than 2,000 jobs and will be included in this year's federal budget. Um, A lot of that funding will target regional and rural areas, including the Hunter Valley in New South Wales and Victoria's La Trobe Valley and Wyala in South Australia. We're not going to achieve net zero in the cafes, dinner parties and wine bars of our inner cities. It will be achieved by the pioneering entrepreneurialism and innovation of Australia's industrial workhorses, farmers and scientists. Not those Chardonnay sippers, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why he needs to create this us and them mentality around climate policy. I mean, a lot of scientists, a lot of people driving those technologies live in our cities and they're part of the solution. They're not the problem. 
Yeah, it's kind of old-fashioned language. But look, given that uh, Queensland Senator Matt Canavan came out all guns blazing yesterday saying that uh, he didn't support this, it was kind of like he he made the analogy of a a 10-year-old kid jumping off his parents' roof thinking he was Superman. We don't have the technology to do this stuff. The Prime Minister really has to appeal to that voter base as well. Yeah, well, he's targeting those communities that uh, have been hurt by um, power stations closing, like the Hunter Valley, and in particular, the Latrobe. Valley. So uh, it definitely makes sense to be spending this money and creating jobs in those areas. And I guess the Prime Minister is trying to get the attention of, of voters in those electorates. And getting the attention of the world as well. This announcement comes just days before US President Biden's climate summit, where the PM and other world leaders will be asked to explain what they're doing to curb climate change. Yeah, so you're seeing a lot of ambition from Joe Biden in the US and also Boris Johnson in the UK. So that's meaning that we here in Australia uh, are going to look like real laggards if we're not keeping Mm -hmm. up. And the Trans-Tasman travel bubble is already facing its first test with a New Zealand airport worker testing positive to COVID. This was a a border worker who did work in an environment where they were coming into contact with the planes that are used to transport people from red zones. That's the New Zealand PM Jacinda Ardern announcing that new case yesterday, the day after Aussies were allowed to start travelling to New Zealand quarantine-free. Not great timing. No, but the worker hadn't been cleaning Australian planes He'd been cleaning planes from countries with severe COVID outbreaks. And Jacinda Ardern said the case had been traced back to the border and the close contacts had been isolated. He'd also been vaccinated, which is good news. So the bubble's expected to remain in place. And these are the kinds of scenarios where we would anticipate movement continuing. It does sound quite reassuring, Katrina, that this guy was vaccinated. He'd undergone regular tests before catching the virus and they were able to contact trace and isolate straight away. Yeah, look, there is that. And I guess, you know, there's so much that is so unknown, though. Like, if you're vaccinated, does that mean you carry less of a viral load and are less able to transmit the virus? These are all still questions that we don't know the answers to. Yeah, uh, we do know for now that the travel bubble will continue despite this case. Here's Greg Hunt, the health minister. They're on to this. We have full confidence in New Zealand's system. That case comes after around 2,000 people flew to New Zealand on the first day of that new travel arrangement. And two controversial government educational videos on consent, uh, one involving a milkshake, another involving tacos, (laughs) have been dumped after being slammed by education experts. They're so problematic in so many ways. Um, First and foremost, they minimise the experience of rape trauma. That's the Australian of the Year and sexual assault survivor Grace Tame talking to the ABC there about those ads. And, you know, like I I giggle before because those ads have been slammed for trivialising the issue. They are sort of portraying this stuff in a a lighthearted way. And the issue, though, is that they talk about consent using really confusing metaphors. Mm. As we said, milkshakes, pizza, tacos. Yeah, let's have a listen to the milkshake ad. Do you want to try my milkshake? Yes, I do. Is it better than yours? I think I prefer mine. You do, huh? Well, drink it. Drink it all. Right, so she's rubbing it on his face at that point? 
Yeah. And this is where it gets super confusing. Like, Tom, you know, I've got a 13-year-old daughter and she is super savvy, you know, Mm. like talking to kids that age about sex, like just talk to them about sex. I found it really hard watching those following along thinking, all right, you're talking about pizza now. Why are you rubbing milkshake on someone's face? What is the metaphor here? Where are we going with this? Yeah. I just think if you're going to talk about consent and sex, let's just call it what it is. Yeah, and the federal government spent $3.7 million on making this campaign that is now in complete disarray. I mean, even people from their own side of politics, like the New South Wales Education Minister, Sarah Mitchell, were slamming it. I think they're pretty woeful. Um, I think that it's a missed opportunity. Yeah, she also said it's a complete waste of money. Look, you know, being a missed opportunity, perhaps now we are going to have much better conversations about how to address this. So, look, we've had a fail, but let's move forward. And Byron Bay residents have had a paddle-out protest uh, against a Netflix reality show set to be filmed in the town. It's a complete misrepresentation and de- degradation of who we are as a community. There's so much anger on social media about this. Ben Gordon, uh, that was Ben Gordon speaking to the ABC there. He was one of the organisers of yesterday's protest, which saw surfers take to the water. They formed a large circle with a line through it while people paraded signs on the beach. But isn't this just playing into the, the production's aims to draw more attention to this story? And like the more, the more they respond, the more cliche Byron they look, like a surfer's paddle out, really? <laughs> <laughs> we should we should mention the show, if you have been, um, you know, maybe living under a rock, it's called Byron Bays, which I've got to say, kudos. That's Good a name. clever name. Yeah. B-A-E-S. Yeah, it's been touted as a docu-soap following the lives of social media influencers, of which there are a highly proportionate number of social media influencers living in the Byron region. Yeah, so here's what one of the local councillors said, Sarah NJ. We can't just say that we don't like the vibe of this. Uh, There need to be very clear reasons that fit within the parameters of of Screen New South Wales and the proposals that they put to us. But look, I get it, Tom, because this um, being sort of a a shiny show about influences and lifestyle, it really does gloss over some of the big issues uh, that are faced by Byron Bay residents, such as environmental issues and also um, lack of housing. So, you know, I can understand the anger about this. Yeah, that's not the real problem. They're just going to be very embarrassed by some of the ridiculous people that live there. (laughs) That's what's happening. Um, All right, um, to a much more serious topic, we're talking about the Royal Commission into Veterans Suicide. I would love to show that we saved one life. The more we save, the better. That was Julianne Finney. Her son, Dave Stafford Finney, took his own life three years ago. He had post-traumatic stress disorder after serving in Afghanistan with the Australian Defence Force. And after he died, his mother, Julianne, began the fight for a royal commission into veteran suicide. Um, and her petition uh, got over 400,000 signatures. And then Amazing. finally, yeah, <laughs> finally on Monday, after all those years of pushing for it, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison made this announcement. A Royal Commission into Defence and Veterans Suicide, a process by which veterans and families can find some comfort 
but it obviously can't replace the loss. To give you an idea of the scale of this issue, 41 people died serving in Afghanistan, Tom, but 10 times that number have taken their own lives after they got home. Yeah, that is such a a shocking statistic. The Department of Veteran Affairs says that uh, 465 suicides have happened uh, since we started that war in Afghanistan between 2001 and 2017. Um, An Australian Institute of Health and Welfare study showed that the the suicide rate for male vets was 18% higher than the national average for men of a similar age. And the number is also higher than the female national average. Um, mm. But the thing is here, so that, that number was bad enough, 10 times the, the amount of people that died serving. But the veterans themselves say the number of suicides is way higher. Yeah, and I think it's been so difficult to collate any meaningful statistics around this issue. Now, the announcement of this Royal Commission came after a hugely emotional long-running campaign from former soldiers, their families, and also an enormous amount of pressure from government and opposition MPs. The government's response was to say no to a Royal Commission. They said the better way to do this was to appoint an ongoing national commissioner. And that happened in February last year. But the veterans wanted a royal commission because it has stronger powers. It can summon witnesses to appear and summon them to answer questions under oath and produce evidence. It has a lot more teeth, basically. Mm, mm. So Heston Russell, who was in the army for 16 years, he's the former Special Air Services Regiment Commander. He founded Voice of a Veteran to help support other vets. And Heston joins us on the briefing now. Heston, what's your reaction to Scott Morrison's announcement? Well, thanks for having me on. And it's uh, as some people have told me, it's actually quite historic. Um, I've sort of had my face very close to the grinder on this and it's been a lot of hard work, but it really is a, a fantastic step in the right direction and one that has been coming for a long, long time and now really should be the catalyst for so much that we can achieve in the veteran community. Are you cynical that it took this long? Uh, look, <laughs> I'm cynical at everything. So um, <laughs> it's very important for me to to smell the roses along the way. I'm quite the perfectionist. So, you know, conversations like why was this saved for Anzac Day and the way this has been orchestrated like a marketing campaign are great and the, the politicians are going to have fun with that. For me, this is about using this opportunity to harness this new energy, this enthusiasm, this focus and respect and recognition and make sure we optimise it for everything it's worth. What do you think about this being a Royal Commission? Do you reckon that's the right vehicle to examine this? And do you reckon it makes sense to work alongside the National Commissioner? When I first came out in support of the National Commissioner when it was announced um, nearly over a year ago, and since then I've been taken on the journey, particularly informed from the ground up by the veterans, which has been the critical part that's been missed uh, in this when we're dealing with decades and decades of what's called moral injury or just simply resentment um, in the veteran community at people being mismanaged, not being heard and being systemically failed, resulting in the suicide and mental health crisis we're in. And it comes down to trust. And what I've really realised, particularly over the last three months since I sort of put all of my efforts into calling for this Royal Commission, is that the veteran community isn't going to trust anything other than a Royal Commission. It's just gone beyond that point of return. And so this is going to be tremendous to actually have that that highest level of recognition to then allow, allow people like myself and many others to then bring veterans to the table and start investing in this process with that trust at a, at a legitimacy level 
But then also having the national commissioner at the same time, as again was one of the first things I said, is, is so needed because it's a big task. This Royal Commission has to go back and investigate over 700 veterans that we've lost to suicide since 2001. And it needs to have the space to be able to do that from a line in the sand. And that's where the National Commissioner can pick up immediately to enable at that time and space to do that, as opposed to dealing with um, ongoing issues at the moment. And then also, as I think everyone will recognise, uh, too many Royal Commissions in this country simply are completed, are, are bound in a leather book and put on a shelf. Just practically on that, what do you hope that this will achieve? I hope this will achieve a number of things. One, finally actually documenting with enough reference the systemic failings that we as veterans know are occurring, particularly in that transition from Department of Defence to the Department of Veterans Affairs and how the Department of Veterans Affairs is structured and what it focuses on. Um, I also really hope to achieve, um, as I said beforehand, that really big healing process that is enabling the thousands and thousands and thousands of veterans over many generations to be able to come forward and tell their story and tell of their experience and contribute to this process and feel invested in this process because there are so many veterans out there that just have this anger, emotion and resentment and just need to be heard. Heston, when you say the the issue, what exactly do you mean? Because I imagine what what you would experience serving in Afghanistan would be traumatising anyway. So how much of this issue is about what you actually experience there and then how much of it is about how you're supported or or not supported when you get back? Tom, I I served four trips in Afghanistan and I lost one of my best soldiers over there. I personally um, had to kill enemy over there. My time in Afghanistan was the best version of me, and I have no um, lasting trauma from my time in Afghanistan. Um, I volunteered to do so, and I did so with some of the best people in the world. My emotional trauma comes from when I came back and then went on my long service leave. I didn't hear from anyone for over a year, uh, and then I went through a box-ticking exercise on the transition out. I was happy, I, Somehow there was a waiver on my file that said I didn't need to have a medical or a psych screening, even after having four deployments to Afghanistan, one to Iraq and all the rest. Uh, and then I was, you know, sent my discharge certificate six months later in the mail. And then I spent 18 months going through the Department of Veterans Affairs trying to get injuries such as my knee that I'd pretty much destroyed four years ago, recognised to get treatment as my body started to slow down and hurt. Mm. And I was pretty much made to feel like a second-class citizen only in the fact that you, you weren't believed, you were treated like it was an insurance investigation uh, and some of the very basic minimal things that you need to help you just <laughs> feel like you have some form of value and that your service potentially meant that you might be treated like a normal person were removed. And that led me to my own suicidal ideation in August of last year. And that came also after losing over six of my guys to suicide who'd been through similar processes um, more than I'd lost in combat. So there are so many different segments to this conversation. There are those who do have that acute PTSD trauma from that time um, overseas and other issues and incidents. But the majority of this actually does come down to this moral injury and in the way in which we really are mismanaging our people and breeding this resentment and causing this trauma to them by simply feel, making them feel devalued, making them feel like all that they gave wasn't worth uh, what they're being treated like, losing that sense of purpose and losing that identity. What about how we just generally have conversations about this stuff, you know, like at barbecues or parties for people listening who've got friends who've returned? How should we address this? How would you like us to talk to you about these experiences? Openly and honestly, and this doesn't just go for veterans, this goes for everyone. A large part of the systemic breakdowns 
in the veteran um, support network also come down to um, our associations and organisations and ex-service organisations that are meant to be supporting our veterans and providing, just as you were saying, those barbecue opportunities. We call I call them those mental mental fitness sessions where you sit standing around decompressing and speaking authentically and holding each other accountable. And what happens is when a veteran leaves um, that daily sort of environment, that daily culture, mm. too many of us only save it up for, for days like Anzac Day where we finally reconnect mm. and have these conversations. And post-burden report, the whole community has been in um, quite the hurt locker with the fear of the Australian public sort of thinking that that was the summary of our time in Afghanistan. And you can imagine how much that hurt for so many who served so well to really fear that our legacy was going down the path of what our Vietnam veterans experienced when they returned. So to any Australian listening, like have conversations with veterans. Don't launch in with things like, hey, have you killed people? Like ask them, hey, can mm-hmm. I have a conversation with you? I want to know more. Don't ask veterans, was it worth it in Afghanistan, which is mm-hmm. another topic that's coming up, because it was. And that veterans don't get to pick, you know, where we go and conduct ourselves and, and demonstrate um, what our country sends us to do. We just do, and we do to the very best of our ability, and we do that for our country, and we do that for each other. And given who we are as Australians, we end up doing that for the local people that we end up endearing ourselves to. Mm. Afghanistan, there are so many issues at the strategic level and how our government employed us and why they continue to employ us, etc. Operationally and tactically on the ground, our men and women uh, were fantastic and have so much to hold their head up high and within the international community are regarded as such amazing soldiers, sailors, airmen and women, not only for the skills we provide, but that great Australian personality that we provide. How difficult is it a decision like the one we heard last week where Joe Biden and then our Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced that we'd be pulling out troops by September and you know it raises all those questions about why we were there and what we achieved during our time in Afghanistan. How challenging are those decisions for people who've served like yourself? For me, it, it stirs up emotions where, as I said before, my time in Afghanistan was the best version of me. I was so aligned on purpose with an amazing team doing uh, what I knew was right and I was able to, to help people. And, um, you know, I lost one of my best guys and, and other friends over there and, you know, it stirs up all that. But, you know, those people we lost died doing what they loved with the people they loved for the country they loved. You, you can't dare um, play down their service in any way by blaming the strategy behind this. Um, again, our job is to go over there and do it. And please, for those listening, don't ever treat us with cotton gloves or put us in, in, in bubble wrap. We need to have these blunt and authentic conversations and we need to be challenged with these conversations. Uh, that's that's where we excel the best in, in crisis. <laughs> We're designed to, to operate best in crisis, in adversity. And us pulling out of Afghanistan should have happened a long, long time ago. It was Australia's longest conflict. Mm. And we have learned so many lessons, many bad, many good, but particularly within our defence forces and for our veterans. We learned so much about ourselves, so much about each other, so much about what the human spirit can do, so much about what real life can be outside of um, our lovely island down here in Australia. So it's a remarkable perspective and one that, again, can't be placed on a shelf, but one that needs to be written down into into scripture for any future leaders, um, be those in politics or be those in the military or be those in everyday life to really be able to read, reference and learn from. 
You mentioned uh, the Brereton report into the alleged war crimes by some of our special forces. And this week, uh, our new Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, announced a reversal of that decision to strip the medals of around 3,000 special forces soldiers. Now, only those who were found guilty or stood down will lose those medals. What do you make of that? Well, isn't it fantastic to have common sense back on the table, um, as opposed to punishing everyone before any convictions have been laid? Um, and I'm just, I implore it for finally having uh, the direct decision being made, particularly now again, as we lead into Anzac Day and removing the uncertainty that has been clouding this subject for, well, what's that, four or five months now and couldn't have happened at a better time. Well, Heston, you've been um, a really passionate and articulate advocate for yourself and, and the rest of the forces who served in Afghanistan. Thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having these conversations and for your support. That was Heston Russell, former Special Air Service Regiment Commander. Very passionate, articulate voice, Katrina. And it's just lovely to hear, I guess, some optimism in his voice that finally we've got a meaningful forum for veterans to tell their stories and particularly for some recommendations that hold real weight to be handed down. And hopefully some healing. And after that um, pretty intense discussion there, if you or anyone you know needs some help, you can get help right now on Lifeline. Call them on 13 11 14. And you can also call Open Arms. Um, It provides counselling and support for current and former ADF members and their families. Uh, It runs 24 hours. It's free. It's confidential. Um, The number is 1800 011 046. That's 1800 011 046 for Open Arms free counselling service for former and current ADF members. Uh, Tomorrow on The Briefing, the first of a two-part series, Life Over the Vaccine Horizon on both sides of the Atlantic. We're going to take you to Washington and to London. Um, America and the UK are way further ahead on the vaccine pathway than we are here in Australia. So how is that changing life? We'll find out tomorrow. Listener.